The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So good morning, Ecclesia family. It's really great to see you all. If we haven't met or if you're new to the community, my name is Mike Yeager. I'm one of our community pastors here at the downtown campus. Uh, As always, such a joy uh, to be together and a joy particularly as we are right in the heart of this ongoing uh, series that has guided us through the fall as we're seeking together to rediscover this sense of enchantment in our faith in, in an often a disenchanted age. Perhaps you've been following along with Richard Beck's book, Hunting Magic Eels, uh, which has been a really wonderful prompt for many of these conversations. So, so uh, my wife and I, uh, Lauren, uh, we've been married for over a decade. It'll be 13 years in January, quite a while, right? Uh, but I was thinking back to the early stages of our relationship, the the season of dating uh, that can be incredibly revealing as you begin to to learn one another's particular rituals, right? So uh, she unfortunately learned one of mine uh, one evening when we happened to be running quite late for the movies. Uh, Because what she did not realize at that point was that while I may be indeed late to a great many things in my life, the the movies are not one of them. I take them very seriously. I have a very orderly process around my my film going. So I need my my center seats, you know, not too close, not too far away. Need time to get your snacks, your popcorn, just the right amount of butter, maybe some raisinets, dark chocolate preferred, right? But I need time to settle in. I need time to settle in and get my mind ready to, to receive this cinematic experience. All of this has to happen before the lights go down. It's very important, right? So you might, you might imagine uh, that the advent of uh, reserved seating in recent years, it has been a benefit to my mental health to a degree that I am frankly a bit embarrassed by. Uh, but back in the day, not the case, no reserved seating. So we're running late, Friday night, anticipated film, you know, big night, opening night, and, and we're showing up, and where do you think we find ourselves sitting? Front row. Front row. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's assaultingly close. My eyes are watering. I mean, neck is strained. This is just, this is not working out. It is a miracle that our relationship survived uh, my poor attitude uh, that night, actually. Um, but you have, I would suggest, your own rituals around events settings, relationships that are of importance to you, right? So in the scope of our series on enchantment, I've been asked today to talk about what we're calling liturgical enchantments, which even in saying that, I can see some of your eyes begin to glaze over, but I'm going to do my best to diffuse some of the churchiness of that language. So when you hear the word liturgy, what that literally means is, is the work of the people, the rituals and rhythms, often physical, that, that, that we do to draw near, to incline our hearts toward a given focal point. So in the church, that encompasses a, a broad array of things that we do to incline our attention to God individually and collectively. What we do with our hands, whether they're folded in, in pleading prayer or open in gratitude or lifted skyward in worship. We pray together in one voice, we sing, we kneel, we break the bread, we pass the cup, we we taste, we anoint babies with oil, we light candles. Everything we do in this time 
is liturgical. It's, it's orienting our attention into the presence and guidance of, of God, our creator, our liberator, our redeemer. So if we've been clear about anything over the past few weeks, I hope it's this, is that we don't do any of this stuff to somehow lure or coax God into our presence to, to somehow earn God's proximity. God is here. God is here with you, with me, with, with us. Richard Beck in his book calls this, this belief sacramental ontology, which is just a, a $10 way of saying what we sing. It's all around you. It's in everything, everything, all that exists points us to God. All the world is a sign. But so many who inhabit that world, post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, really, as we've discussed, have, have, have drawn this dividing line. And on one side, we have the, the visible, the, the material, the rational world of science and reason that we call somehow real. And on the other side, the invisible, the, the mysterious, the unseen, the miraculous, the, the spiritual world is somehow unreal. And, and what this series has hoped to do from the beginning is, is to bridge the two, to bring those, that false dichotomy, that false separation into harmony. So like many of you, perhaps, many in the, in the community, certainly, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church. And in Catholic spirituality, there is this beautiful integration of the ethereal and the physical, the belief, we might say, that, that matter matters. The belief that the material and the sensory are essential to draw our attention toward the transcendence. But others of you perhaps have grown up in many Protestant traditions or not in church at all. And all, all of that stuff, the incense and rosaries and stained glass and statues and icons and holy water, it can all seem understandably uh, performative, excessively lavish, superstitious, or even spooky. You know, my, my grandmother, to this day, to this day, prays to St. Anthony when she loses something, right? I can't confirm if it's ever worked, but I do imagine that it's not exactly how St. Anthony thought he'd be spending the afterlife helping my grandma find her keys, right? But I also can't confirm that it hasn't worked, uh, my mom, she sent me a text earlier in the morning. She heard the message online and all it said was the prayer to St. Anthony works. Like, so that's the, only, <laughs> that's the only feedback I got from my mother. But I might suggest to you that those rituals, those habits, making the sign of the cross, genuflecting and all the kneeling and all of the, you know, how, how we call them the smells and bells of high church liturgy. There's something about them that I wish that I had more fully embraced when I was a bratty teenager, just bored to tears by the mass and how rote and repetitive it all felt. We're doing the same thing over and over again and again. Why? Because it's about preparation. Like Gideon shared with us last week, it's the discipline, it's the practice that grounds us when the unexpected catastrophe hits. He shared that harrowing story of being on the bike ride with his friends, if you remember last week, and careening down the hillside with no brakes, and only the practice and preparation that allowed him to plant his feet and skid to a stop before careening over the cliffside. It's the practice. It's also about cultivating attentiveness and intentionality, the discipline to keep showing up even when God seems silent 
I think we've all had a season where it feels that God is silent, distant, elusive. Like undoubtedly many of you, I went through a bout of COVID late last fall, thankfully very mild in my case, aside from the fact that from late November into early January, about a month and a half, uh, my sense of smell and taste were non-existent. It's one of those cases, right? Just one, one morning, I noticed it while I was brushing my teeth, like a light switch, just gone. Uh, and you can imagine how much I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas this year. Uh, I did not gain any weight last year, thankfully, but, but it was brutal in its own way. But, but every day became this new opportunity. It slowed me down. It was a test, placing something on my tongue and paying infinitely more attention. Am I tasting anything? What am I tasting? And I would argue that the rhythm of being present to God is a lot like those days, sometimes often sensing nothing at all or only faintly, but trusting, hoping, pleading for that experience, that spark, that sensation to return. And we keep at these practices that are conducive. We're saying, God, I'm here. Whatever you want to say, I'm here waiting for you. And so the liturgy, the things that we surround ourselves with, the the things that we practice, they're expressions of faith as a kind of dual declaration. What I mean by that is we declare in reverence, in remembrance and expectation, or reverence and gratitude that God has come to meet us. Truly, that God was here. We can say, we saw it. We were all here together. It was undeniable. And then we also do these practices in expectation and trust that God will do so again. God has been faithful. God will be faithful. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus has just begun his, his public ministry and he's not wasting any time. He's performed his first miracle at Cana and he's disrupted the temple in Jerusalem, turning over tables. And we're gonna pick up as he is preparing to part, depart from Judea and already hearing these hints of opposition he's going to be facing from the re- religious leadership of the time. And John chapter four begins this way. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized. He left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the story goes on to describe this extended encounter that Jesus shares with the Samaritan woman at the well, this radical cultural boundary crossing, indicative of Jesus always seeking out the marginalized and the vulnerable. But let's focus for a moment on the setting itself. This is the only time that we hear this site named in the scriptures, but over the past 1700 years following the site, the archeological site thought to be, believed to be the location of Jacob's well, a number of churches have been built in layers over that site. So it's currently the site of a Greek Orthodox church, St. Photini. And if you go to St. Photini and down this narrow stone stairway beneath the monastery, you do indeed find a well and you're invited to turn the crank and raise the bucket on a pulley 
from many meters beneath the surface. I had the indescribable privilege to be there myself with, with Lauren and a group of fellow pilgrims from our community a couple years ago. Jules is with us. And the water is cold and clear. And like so much about being in the Holy Land, it's whether this was the precise location, indeed, that this particular encounter between Jesus and this unnamed Samaritan woman actually happened. It's totally secondary. Scholars have reasoned enough to believe with high likelihood that this is the place. But what really matters, I would say, is that it undeniably feels like the place. And that conviction, that devotion, that faith has endured and been passed on and led believers, countless believers over the course of centuries to protect it, to upkeep it, and countless more to seek it out as pilgrims. The place has been marked in remembrance and expectation. To use a word that's probably becoming more familiar in this series, it has been hallowed. And so we can't all go to the Holy Lands, but I pray that someday you do. So how might we find that kind of enchantment in the liturgical rhythms of our own lives, in our families, in our communities, the things you do and surround yourself with. So Pastor Chris talked a couple weeks ago about the hallowing of our, our physical spaces, which I'll simply echo again as an invitation and encouragement to surround yourself with, with beauty, with images that, that spark imagination or memories of God's faithfulness, times of joy, connection, adventure, but not so that they would simply become part of the blur, part of the backdrop so much that we just walk past without considering each day. But as we walk by a picture of a time with family or a, a time of retreat and vacation, that we would put ourselves back in that place and see again with gratitude, God, you were there. Maybe, just maybe, you're here with me right now on this day which maybe I'm struggling. Maybe it's been a hard season, whatever the challenges are, but we look back to look forward. Another practice might be carrying a small totem with you. I I'll often have with me this prayer stone that uh, Lauren gave me during a, a season of particular trial and anxiety. And I often just reach down and find it and find this centering with God and in my marriage. Other days, I might have with me this marble, this green marble. It was handed to my son, Miles, when he was about two by our friend, Bob Goff, about right there on the floor. And if you know Bob, um, or if you ever have a chance to meet Bob, ask him for a marble. There is like a 90% chance he's got a pocket full of marbles. That's just the kind of guy our friend Bob is. But it reminds me of God's delight in us as children and a sense of play, a, a reminder that I frankly need as someone who can take things a bit too seriously, if I'm going to be honest. But it's just a stone. But it's more than a stone. It's just a marble. But it's more than a marble. They have become memory. They've become sacrament. They have become hallowed. Material, tactile reminders of spiritual truths, realities. So is there a a small object that, that could be for you, a tether to a truth that you need to be reminded of. You might also consider how not, we're not only mere, uh, merely hallowing our spaces, the physical spaces around us, 
But Halloween time itself, because I've got some really bad news for you. Really, I, I really don't even want to break it to you. We're about a week from Halloween, right? Which means we are about a week from Christmas decor beginning to go up all around us. We're not going to be able to stop it. It's not okay. We'll all start to feel that momentum intensifying. And I would say that if we don't have a practice that grounds us, we will inevitably be swept away by that current. And so now is as good a time as any to, to adopt or to reinvigorate a rhythm of, of prayer and attentiveness. It's been a great joy to curate our Wander podcast series, this, uh, these contemplative invitations, simply to, to get outside and take a walk with God. Uh, the third episode will be released this coming Wednesday. The first two you can find at ecclesiahouston.org slash wander. It's a shameless plug for something I'm working on. But I truly hope you'll engage with it and find it a blessing. The weather has been so beautiful. But however you'll consider to hallow your spaces, to hallow your time, it's important mainly for us to remember why we do this in the first place. It's the same reason that we know and trust that God is right here with us in the liturgy of the ordinary, the work of the people in the everyday. If we go back to the scripture, we see that Jesus showed up to this well right in the peak midday heat. The God of the universe, he was tired, he was thirsty. He was human. Jesus' whole ministry was an affirmation that, that matter matters, that his life was rooted in the tactile substance of reality, literally embodied. He ate, he touched, he healed, he rested, he wept. Eventually he bled and died. I want to close with these words from Barbara Brown Taylor. This is one of my favorite books, An Altar in the World, but I think beautifully speaks to this embodied faith. And she writes it this way. She says, to make bread or love, to dig in the earth, to feed an animal or cook for a stranger. These activities require no extensive commentary, no lucid theology. All they require is someone willing to bend, reach, chop, stir. Most of these tasks are so full of pleasure that there is no need to complicate things by calling them holy. And yet these are the same activities that change lives, sometimes all at once and sometimes more slowly, the way dripping water changes stone. In a world where faith is often construed as a way of thinking, bodily practices remind the willing that faith is a way of life. And so, Ecclesia, in all you do, in the rituals of your liturgical life, the work of the people today and throughout the week, may it indeed be enchanted. Like Moses, you'll take off your sandals and just maybe you'll find that you'll, you've been standing on holy ground all along. Thanks be to God. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.